Once again, I hope that you all are, are doing well this morning. We will be continuing, uh, continuing this new year back into 1 Peter, uh, and then we will go into 2 Peter, uh, and then after 2 Peter we will find a place in the Old Testament, Lord willing, if the Lord shall tarry. Uh, otherwise, we're going to continue on with, with 1 Peter and 2 Peter. So I invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. A few weeks ago, when we were in 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter was making this transition from the, these very hard statements, these very hard uh, commands, these imperatives to, to the people, to those who were suffering in Asia Minor to endure, but these tough sayings were about being holy and following Christ as their example, but other imperatives that we heard that were really tough were the ones where we are to continue to be subject to our governmental authorities. Chapter 2, uh, verses 13 through 17, slaves are to be uh, to submit to their masters in all things. Uh, chapter 2, 18 through 20, wives are to submit to their husbands. In chapter 3, 1 through 6, but in chapter 3, verse 8, the discussion shifts from these very hard imperatives and sayings and the weight that these people were probably starting to bear, the weight that we were starting to bear under these imperatives, and Peter transitions into encouraging these Christians. He doesn't ignore their suffering, but he encourages them in their suffering to endure well together, to endure well to, together, to have unity of mind within the body of Christ, to have sympathy for one another, brotherly love for one another, to have a humble mind toward one another, all of the opposite of those things that destroy and hurt churches, to not repay evil with evil or reviling with reviling, but rather, as Peter says, for you to be a blessing. For you to be a blessing, because being a blessing is what, as he says, is what we have been called to do. That's verses 8 through 9 in chapter 3. He goes on to tell us to have no fear, nor be troubled by the world. Do not have fear of what the world may project upon you. We don't fear them, nor do we fear the things that the world fears. We do not fear suffering. We do not fear the things that they fear. We fear the Lord. And as we read Romans 8 that week, and if the Lord is for us, who can be against us? We have hope in Christ alone, and we honor Christ alone. Verse 15, and without fear and with hope in Christ, we are always ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us. The Lord is sovereign over all of our sufferings. And in our sufferings, and in his sovereignty, he uses us as his witnesses. And now there's verse 17. That makes the transition into where we are this morning, and it's an important verse. He says, for it is better to suffer for doing good, 
if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. That's a pretty big statement. It's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So we're left with the question, why is it better to suffer for doing good rather than evil? Look at 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. So why is it better to suffer for doing good rather than evil? The answer is right there in our passage. It is because Jesus has already walked the road of suffering and that he was completely vindicated and glorified. But more about that later. Now for some of you, some of our smart Alex in here, you have been waiting for this, for this passage because this is one of the hardest passages in the New Testament to exegete and to interpret. But it's also one of the greatest texts and so encouraging. It's ignored often because it's very hard and difficult to explain and understand, but it is one of the most encouraging passages. I like what Martin Luther said about this passage. He said, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament. So that I do not know for certain just what Peter means, I cannot understand, and I cannot explain it. And there has been no one who has explained it. I could not agree more with Luther on this passage. It is wonderful, but it is hard, and it is obscure, and it is confusing. For example, look at verse 19, the shortest verse there, but yet with the, the craziest stuff. What does it mean when it says that Christ, he, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison? What is that? Verse 21, how does baptism correspond with the salvation of Noah? And how does baptism save you? We're Baptists. We should know what this means. We're good Baptists. We're faithful Baptists. And we require anyone who desires to follow Christ and to be a church member to be baptized as a believer, to be fully immersed into the pool of water 
all the way under. But we do not believe that the ordinance of baptism saves or dispenses grace as a requirement of salvation. So are we disobedient to the scripture then? Are we being unfaithful to God's word? And if so, this is a big one. I'm going to do my best to address some of those issues in, in a few minutes, but I don't want us to get lost among the weeds this morning. I don't want us to get lost in the weeds and, the, and all the debates that surround these passages because what we will miss is the whole garden filled with the ripe fruit of encouragement. My goal is not to settle centuries of debate. I'm too dumb to do so. I can't do that on the interpretation of this passage, but we're also not going to let history or tradition as well shape our view, but allow God's word to encourage and to instruct us in maturity in Christ so that we too would be encouraged to continue to endure. So I have two points of encouragement this morning for you. First encouragement, number one, and this is a big one, and I'm just going to go ahead and say it for everyone. Ryan, will be, be ready to say amen on this. Ready? <laughs> Christ has won. That was weak sauce. Come on. Christ has won. Amen. That's right. So besides the difficult interpretation of these, these verses, we have one of the strongest and clearest passages of the work of Christ in his victory. Peter has already told us that Jesus is our example in suffering. That's chapter 2, verse 21, I believe. He tells us how to endure because this is how Jesus endured. But Jesus, brothers and sisters, is more than just an example on how to endure suffering. He is more to us than just an ethical example. Christ is our Savior. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Verse 18. He is our Savior because he suffered once and for all, and he has made an offering for sin. He was the perfect, all-atoning sacrifice, the righteous, the perfect, sinless Son of God for the unrighteous, meaning Christ is our perfect substitute. We need no one else or nothing else. You bring nothing. No one else brings anything. Christ died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Verse 18 clearly displays the beauty of substitutionary atonement because he was our perfect, all-sufficient substitute. He is our Savior because in his death, he's completely satisfied the wrath of God toward sinners because Christ stood in the place. That's propitiation. Check out the Apostle John on that. And we cannot miss the theme of suffering here. The theme of suffering throughout 1 Peter. It's the whole point for Christians to endure through suffering. And now here's Jesus who suffered, who didn't just die on the cross. He suffered and died on the cross. 
Jesus endured the greatest evil and injustice that mankind has ever perpetuated. Nothing can top it. But Jesus suffered even more. The full weight and measure and wrath of God toward our sin. He suffered for the sins of others. That's what Peter's making very clear here. He's suffering the, sin, the, the suffering for the sin of others, not his own. But in Jesus' suffering, what has it accomplished? It has accomplished in bringing us to God. Amen. And we can just pause there for a moment and just reflect. And in your heart, just thank him. Thank you, God. Thank you, Christ. You suffered and died, the righteous for the unrighteous. But his suffering and his his death, brothers and sisters, it was not the last word. Because as it says in verse 18 there, it says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ was put to death in the flesh and the body, but he was made alive by the spirits. Christ suffered in the body, but the spirit raised him, Romans 8, 11, from the dead. And here's the thing. For those who are in Christ, his victory is our victory. That even though you may face suffering, brothers and sisters, beloved in Christ, we share in his resurrection. Christ died as we will one day die. He was buried as we will be buried. But Jesus was raised by the Spirit and in the Spirit with an incorruptible body, and so shall we. Our future hope is not that we would just die and become some merely spiritual being. No, we await a resurrection of the dead when we will receive a body that will never die and that will never decay or never feel pain. That is the future inheritance that Peter has already been speaking of that is unfading and undying and undefiled and imperishable that awaits us. Christ's victory then reminds us, brothers and sisters, Christians, that our troubles today are only temporary because the victory is won. Because Christ has triumphed over sin and death once and for all to bring us to God. But his victory was also over the evil powers. In verse 19, again, the shortest one of the passage, one of the most difficult verses in the New Testament to understand, again, because it leaves us with so many questions. Question one, who are the, who are the spirits in prison? When did Jesus proclaim? And what did Jesus proclaim? Well, we know why the spirits were in prison. Verse 20 tells us that they formally did not obey. They sinned. They were disobedient to the Lord. 
Augustine, as well as many others, view and believe that this text means that Christ preached through Noah by the Holy Spirit to those who lived while the ark was being built so that, so that those, uh, those who are the spirits who are in prison. Those who were spirits in prison were those who were lost and needed to be preached to and needed to repent. Another view is that, that Peter is referring to Old Testament saints who have died and were liberated by Christ between his death and resurrection. That answers two of the questions, or at least helpful, right? Another view is that these imprisoned spirits are sinful human beings who died during the Noahic flood, and that Christ intervenes between his death and his resurrection, and he goes and he gives them the opportunity to repent and to be saved. And then that leads us to the last, uh, that, that view then leads, unfortunately, to a second chance. To the, all those who are in hell, then they, they get a second chance to repent. And of course, as we know, these, this has some serious theological errors. Because even from 1 Peter, we know that this is incorrect, but also especially when Jesus tells the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And lastly, the majority view, and my view, and I want to give to you this morning, is that Christ's proclamation of victory and then judgment is over the evil fallen angels. Prison in the New Testament is never used in the place of human dead but it does fit with Satan and the demons' imprisonment in Revelation 20, verse 7. The word spirits does not necessarily mean human beings or human spirits because Peter doesn't make that qualification for us. These spirits are fallen angels or evil angels who are imprisoned because they were disobedient. In Genesis chapter 6, what we read this morning, it describes how these evil angels were disobedient and had sexual relations with women, which continued to lead man into debauchery and sin. And this is also the most probable view because of interpretation because of the Jewish tradition of the day, in Peter's day. There's some references of, uh, in an apocryphal book of uh, First Enoch, but also it appears, seems to appear in Jude verse 6. It says, And angels who did not stay with their own position and of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept the in eternal chains under gloomy darkness under the judgment of the great day. That sounds like prison to me. Second Peter chapter 2 verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. So then, if the spirits who are in prison are these fallen angels, then what did Jesus proclaim to these fallen angels? The word proclaim here is not the usual um, uh, uh, it's not the usual Greek word for 
uh, the proclamation or to preach the gospel, the euangelion. It's not, this, it's not the same Greek word, but it's caruso, which means to just to proclaim. Jesus didn't evangelize the spirits in prison, the fallen angels, but rather he proclaimed to them his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation has sealed their defeat and their doom. He proclaimed his dominion and his rule over them. So the last question is, when did he proclaim? When Jesus was made alive by the Spirit, verse 18, then whatever proclaiming that Jesus did in verse 19, verse 19, had to have taken place after his resurrection. We know that the Apostles' Creed says that Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and he descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. However, the descent into hell didn't take place after his death, but it took place while he was on the cross when he was separated from his father. Jesus literally experienced hell on earth. The Apostle Creed then is right, if we read it that way, that he was crucified, descended into hell, died, and was buried. We also know that after Jesus' death, Jesus point, joined his father as he told the thief who was coming with him that they would be in paradise. The point of this passage is not that Jesus descended into hell after after, uh, after he died and between his death and his resurrection, but rather the point of this is his victory over sin and death and all unrighteousness, but also over all evil and uh, all demons and all evil angelic powers and Satan and that they are all under in subjection to him. We see that throughout Jesus' ministry. Throughout Jesus' ministry, Jesus goes out of his way to go cast out demons, to throw them into pigs so that they fly off cliffs, to save people from demons, to show his power and his authority over the evil spirits. Jesus was not only raised, but Jesus' Jesus's victory extends also in his exaltation. In verse 22, we can skip down to the bottom there, of our passage, it says, who has gone into heaven, Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Having been subjected to him. Everything and everyone is in subjection to Jesus. Now, this is an interesting word that he uses here. Because Peter has been telling us uh, in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 that these hard sayings that you are to be subject, subjection to government authorities, masters, husbands, whatever it may be, even if they are wicked, we're called to be in subjection to. But Jesus here, from the word what Peter says, Jesus has totally turned the tables around. All angels, all authorities. Do you hear that? All the authorities that we are now in subjection to. 
all authorities, including the wicked ones we, we submit to now, and all demons are all subjected to Jesus. And why? Because he is victorious. He is victorious. And I know all of this kind of sounds crazy <laughs> to our scientific minds. But this is to encourage you. And that if Christ has been vindicated in his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his exaltation, then brothers and sisters, so shall we. You know, one of the most famous battles in all of history was the Battle of Waterloo. You might remember that it was the, the French army commanded by Napoleon. And this is one of the, the most decisive battles in all of history to stop a, uh, uh, a uh, despot from conquering the world. On June 18, 1815, the French lined up against an Anglo-German and Dutch forces and were led by Duke, the Duke of Wellington and the Prussian forces led by General Gebhard Blücher. And on that day, the French were defeated. But do you know how the, the news of the victory was, how it was reached, how, how it reached England? Dispatches traveled across the English Channel to the southern coast of England. And from there, the news was signaled by flags every few miles as they could see the flags until eventually it reached London. And then when the news reached London, they went to Winchester Cathedral with more flags which were hung up to the top. And it was to spell out the message for all the city to, for all the city to see. And it said... Wellington defeated. And before the rest of the message could be seen by all the people and all the flags raised, the London fog had rolled in and hid the rest of the message. Of course, that, that news spread throughout the city and throughout the countryside, and it just devastated everyone because they knew they couldn't suffer another defeat because Napoleon was on his way and that he could make his way to the channel and England then would be next. The city was in gloom. But when the fog lifted and the message was completely revealed, it said, Wellington defeated the enemy. And you know what happened in the city? What we would expect. All, all the fear turned to joy. All the gloom turned to rejoicing. Brothers and sisters, in a manner like this, Christ defeated is not the whole story. We don't live with just that news. Often it feels like that kind of news. It feels like that's the, that's the only part of the message that we have received. And, and as the fog rolls in each week, we feel hopeless. We feel defeated as if Christ has lost and sin continues to 
own us. It's how the disciples felt when they saw Christ on the cross. It's how the disciples felt when they had to take his body off the cross and it was buried in the tomb. It's how they felt until Sunday morning when they went to the tomb and saw the stone rolled away. But that's not the whole story. Christ defeated is not the whole story. The whole story is God's word. As the flags on the cathedral that day says, Christ defeated the enemy. And he is victorious. And you people share in his victory. We rejoice as they rejoice. Because your righteousness before God is now secured. Oh, unrighteous one, find your righteousness in Christ alone, and you will see that his sacrifice was perfect and once and for all. You will be rejoicing because he has brought you to God. The enemy is disarmed. Waterloo has happened. The cross destroyed the enemy. He is disarmed. And they know, those evil angels and demons know that our king is victorious. So beloved, be encouraged that if you face suffering, that Christ has already won. And everything and everyone is in subjection to him. Second encouragement. Second encouragement. Death is not the last word. When you look again at verse 20, the argument for encouragement continues and turns to a well-known Old Testament story to illustrate the blessing of baptism. Peter says in verse 20, he says, When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if the view that I've already told you is true or the most viable in verse 19 and the beginning of verse 20, the spirits that are in prison Jesus proclaimed are proclaimed to are the fallen angels and he proclaimed to him his victory over sin and death and over them, uh, then uh, in the Genesis chapter 6, we, we talked of, uh, about that. In Genesis chapter 6, in 1 through 8, we read this morning where he talks about those fallen angels. The rest of chapter 6, all the way through chapter 9, is the story of Noah. And so this is the connection being, being made. The wickedness of angels combined with, their sin, with sinful man in Genesis 6, the Lord brought judgment upon the world. Now we know the story of Noah, and Peter is referencing this, this story, the story of Noah. He's referring to it as true. Peter believes that the story is true. 
Peter believes that the story is true. He has no doubt in his mind. There's no question in his mind that there was a worldwide flood. So if you listen or read any scholars today who say otherwise, believe Peter. And what Peter reminds them of and us is that God is merciful in his patience while the ark was being prepared before before the great devastating judgment that was going to come upon the whole world after a long period of self-restraint and patience with the world that was in rebellion and wickedness. The floodwaters destroyed the whole world. We know the story. Destroyed the whole world. God's judgment on the wicked. And when you get beyond the, the children's stories, you see the truth of God's righteous wrath being poured out on sinners. But Peter turns it around for us to understand not those necessarily who have been judged, but for us to see the mercy and grace of God that through the same judgmental waters, flood waters that destroyed the wicked, the Lord saved the few. The Lord saved the few. The same righteous judgment that was poured out on unrepentant sinners that rejected God's merciful patience also brought salvation to the aid of Noah and his family. It was the Lord and his mercy that delivered them. And this is the example of God's grace in saving Noah and his family through judgment. And Peter is using that as a type or a picture of Christian baptism, baptism, meaning the Lord has brought us through judgment safely. The Lord hasn't brought us through the Noahic flood, but rather we will be brought through judgment in the future day when God will destroy the ungodly and make all things new. So by your baptism, through the resurrection of Christ, Peter says in verse 21, now saves you. Now before we deal with the big question in verse 21, does baptism save you, we must consider the ways that the floodwaters prefigure to baptism. The flood was an agent of death. And similarly to baptism, which is by immersion in the New Testament, and now when someone who comes to faith in Christ is literally plunged all the way under the water. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 3. He says in verse 3, Romans 3, do, not, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall be certainly united with him in a resurrection like his. What a powerful message that Paul has given to us about baptism. Baptism doesn't mean just new life. As Paul says, it means that we first come and we die in the water. We die in those flood waters. But believers survive the death-dealing waters of baptism 
because we are baptized with Christ, just as we read in Romans 3. We're buried with him in baptism and into death, but we are rescued through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ emerged through the waters of baptism of his death, as he said he was going to do in Luke 12 and in Mark 10. We would need to go through it, and as he did, and in his resurrection, raised with the Spirit, so shall we. Death is not the final word. Death does not have the last word because Christ is alive and he is resurrected from the dead, and so shall we. Tom Schreiner said about this passage, he said, The waters of baptism, like the waters of the flood, demonstrate that destruction is at hand. But believers are rescued from these waters in that they are baptized with Christ who was also emerged from the waters of death through his resurrection. Just as Noah was delivered through the stormy waters of the flood, believers have been saved through the stormy waters of baptism by virtue of Christ's triumph over death. Now that is some good news. So we have to go back now and we got to answer the question, does baptism save? Now, we have to make a distinction, of course. We always got to make distinctions. Because Peter is not talking about the rite of baptism, or is he talking about the act of baptism itself as having inherent power to save sinners? We're told in verse 21 that baptism is not the removal of dirt from their body, but rather it is this but rather the saving power of baptism is rooted only in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So any notion that baptism itself, the pool, the waters, the ritual, the holding of breath, the crossing arms, the word spoken, does not save. The water from Statesboro's uh, water treatment plant uh, into our water heater, out of the sink, and through Bill's hose, and into the tractor supply, cattle, trough, does not magically cleanse you and save you. It doesn't. It doesn't. So it's not coming from a magical place. The explanation, then, is when Peter says that baptism saves, is that baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me explain this. And again, I'm, I'm leaning a lot on Shriner. He's very, been very helpful in understanding a lot of this. Believers at baptism ask God on the basis of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to cleanse their consciences and to forgive their sins. Hebrews 10.22 says that Christians draw near with a full heart and full, uh, draw near in a, with a true heart and with full assurance of faith, faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with a pure water. We come by faith on the, on the basis of the resurrection of Christ and baptism is the symbol of the act of faith to die to sin and to live in the new life that Christ has given you. 
So what cleanses our conscience? Was it the act of getting into some waters or a pool or a river or a lake or someone saying some words over you as you are being dunked under? Or is it by the cross and the resurrection of Christ? This certainly fits the context of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, our passage this morning. And it helps us to understand what is meant here. Peter emphasizes Christ's death as the means by which believers are brought into God's presence. Verse 18, where Christ died for believers, the righteous for the unrighteous. <clears throat> so believers enter into God's presence on the basis of God's grace alone. So to Peter is not focused on promises that believers make or the work of baptism, but he's focusing on the work, the saving work of Christ in the resurrection of Christ. Believers then at baptism can be confident, not on the water or the right, but on the basis of the work of the crucified and risen Lord, and that their appeal to have a good conscience will be answered. Hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and bodies washed with a pure word, with pure water. Dear brothers and sisters, can you see the encouragement from this? The wicked in Noah's day were many, but the Lord preserved and saved that few. Is, is this not for us, the church? Do we not know that judgment is coming and it will be far worse than floodwaters? But through the gospel and through Christ, some are being saved. Even when the numbers are few, even when the odds are stacked against God's people, the Lord is willing and able to save his people. The Christians in Asia Minor, they were few. And they faced the ridicule and suffering and persecution from, from the world and from many. And the same will and can be for us. And we are the few. But we can be sure that the Lord will fulfill his promises. This is to be encouraging. Because death is not the final word, so we do not fear. Christ has triumphed over death. And, our, and in our baptism, we understand that through him, we triumph over death. Our confidence is not in the flesh. Our confidence is not in confessions. Our confidence is not in the rite or the ritual of baptisms, but our confidence is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And through our baptism in Christ, we appeal God for a good conscience, a new heart as a new creation, a new righteousness for the unrighteous, because we have been brought near to God by his grace. And that is what we have faith in. I know we didn't solve the centuries of debates that encircles these verses this morning. And I get that. I told you that from the beginning. However, I hope that you are encouraged. Because that is what you should be taking away from this passage. Encouragement that is deeply rooted in your Savior, Jesus Christ, who suffered once for sins to bring you to God. 
encouraged in him who is victorious over sin and death and evil. That he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is in heaven at the right hand of God and has put everything in subjection to him. Encouraged to remember that, the, that death does not have the last word. And I hope that that gives you courage. That gives you hope and joy. I hope that fuels your desire for, for prayer, for Christian fellowship, for worship to the Lord, which is private and public. <clears throat> I hope it fuels your desire for God's word and to study his word. I hope this calls you to repent of sin and to fight sin with a holy fervor to honor Christ in your hearts. I hope this leads you to, be, to cherish your baptism and then the baptism of others. And if you've never been baptized as a Christian, I hope this leads you to be baptized and to come to Christ. And for all of us, I hope this is, encourages you to in, endure well in Christ as you follow him on the road to glory that he has blazed before us. And all God's people say...